0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski will talk about art deco, department stores, and virtual styling. They'll also cover a weird jewelry story of the week. everyone welcome to the jewelry district. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor in chief of JCK and JCK Online, and I am still here in LA working from home like the rest of us. I'm with
1: Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. Still stuck here. It's like a hundredth week in endless quarantine.
0: Even though we're not technically quite under quarantine anymore, but who knows? It is a limbo, a sort of a weird purgatory that we're in. But I guess hopefully we're making the best of it. It's already September, which is kind of blowing my mind. I've just never been home so much.
1: Yeah, and it all kind of blurs together, you know. It just you you wake up and it's like Monday is pretty much the same as Saturday or Friday. It all kind of seems the same.
0: I mean, I think the kind of comforting thing is that, you know, life in many ways goes on. There's still plenty of things happening. I've sat through a number of presentations for new watch collections, new jewelry collections, new websites that are debuting. It is a strange year to introduce something new and to debut a new business, unveil a whole new collection. But, you know, people had these plans in the works and maybe they were delayed, but they're still very much happening. And I find great comfort in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people adjust because you have no choice but to adjust so you you do and speaking of new stuff i just read a fascinating article in the new york times recently called art deco at 100 jewelry can't get enough by uh victoria gomelsky oh and it was all about art deco and you It's not about our deco necessarily returning to jewelry. It's just about, I guess, the enduring influence. Yeah.
0: I mean, listen, for anybody in the jewelry industry, and I state this right up front in the lead, it's not as if deco has made a big comeback. It's never really gone away. And I think the point was to draw attention to that enduring relevance and also talk about the ways that jewelers have revisited the style and interpreted it for the 21st century. You know, you you enter 2020, and of course, I think it was natural for many of us to look back 100 years to the 1920s. And so it became this natural, reflexive look back. And so those of you who are about to get your JCK September issue, we have a beautiful feature in there that was written by our contributor, Amy Elliott, called Stack the Deco. It's both a still life and also a look at this. When I started researching this New York Times piece, It was because I know that for jewelers, you know, many have defined their whole aesthetic on revisiting or reinterpreting deco in some way. And so, you know, I ended up looking at jewelers. I mentioned Nikos Koulas. Many of you are familiar with him. He's an Athens-based designer who has a really strong deco aesthetic in his work. I also mentioned these really hyper-rarified jewels that are produced by these twin brothers in Australia named David and Michael Robinson. They're identical twins. They don't wholesale because they make maybe five to ten jewels a year from start to finish. They make jewels in this deco tradition that valued craftsmanship and taking time to produce pieces with these very angular lines, these silhouettes and shapes and this geometry that unites what is, in fact, a very broad aesthetic. I mean, if you consider 1920 to 1939, which are roughly the years that scholars will consider to be the deco period, there's an incredibly wide range of styles and includes a more machine age aesthetic that a lot of people call art moderne. And I think for jewelry, what is so fascinating about deco is that it doesn't really ever look dated, Boucheron came out with a really lauded collection of high jewelry in July called Contemplation. And I spoke to the creative director and for two of the pieces in the modern 2020 collection, she looked back to the archives and pulled out a brooch from 1919 and then a necklace that uh, from 1925 that she used as this design model for a very futuristic necklace she created this year it is really what deco is all about. It doesn't age. I spoke to an art deco historian based out of Chicago, and he wasn't a jewelry expert. Jewelry is considered fashion and ephemeral to them. But he talked about how deco has cycled in and out of fashion and that it was truly discovered in the 60s after going out of style by people like Andy Warhol, who found these deco Designs at thrift shops, and they were so mass marketed that they were now down to the level of like garage sale and rediscovered them in the 60s. And that's when the term Art Deco actually really entered the lexicon. But one of the things this historian I interviewed spoke about was how, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, we've been so obsessed with the mid century modern aesthetic. If you go to furniture stores or walk around any sort of interior design spaces that mid-century modern look has really dominated and of course it's now feeling a little cliche and so what happens this fall just in the last couple weeks i start getting catalogs from crate and barrel these popular interior design sites and they're all touting the new deco So I do think there is this very natural moment in the zeitgeist when we're returning to the deco period, the deco aesthetic, because it feels fresh again after years of that mid-century modern look. So I guess the upshot for jewelers is keep your eyes peeled because you're going to see all kinds of new deco interpretations and you're already seeing them.
1: Yeah. And and one point you bring up in the article is our deco is generally associated with being modern. It's always associated with luxury and the roaring 20s. And you bring up that all that happened right after the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. And some people think that history may soon repeat itself, as you say. And you have a quote, when we come out of this, people are going to want to party, drink, and dance on the tables.
0: Yeah, a really fun quote. Like, we're on the brink of an explosion of jewelry wearing because when people are finally allowed to go out, they are going to want to do it dressed to the nines. I mean, that is a comment I've heard come up a few times now, and it makes me smile. I really hope that's true. I mean, of course, none of us have crystal balls. But don't you feel like, you know, these pendulum swings, we're now in this point of feeling very quiet, minimal, contemplative, and it's bound to erupt into something that is the opposite of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when everybody feels it's really safe, I think you will have some change of behavior. There's no question. I mean, I think people will go out. Assuming there's places to go out too. that not everything is closed, I think people are going to be very excited. And I mean, I think people are very eager to get back to normal.
0: Well, what about you? What's on your plate these days?
1: You know, I'm looking at department stores. You know, are consumer habits going to get back to normal? Department stores are really having huge problems right now. The only one you don't hear murmurs about is Target maybe maybe a few others, but Lauren Taylor just closed. JCPenney is very, very, no one knows what's going to happen with that. There's rumors of problems at Macy's and even Marcus is in chapter 11. All these big kind of icons of American retail are having huge problems because if you think about what the department store used to be, it used to be a place where you could get everything, right? Mm -hmm. And now we have online. You don't necessarily have to go to one place for everything. You can get everything without leaving your house. And I think the department stores, I mean, I'm obviously not the first person to make this observation. They haven't really kept up with the times, you know, by a lot of accounts. Not all of them treat their people very well. And department stores have always been kind of gimmicky in a sense. They've always had a lot of sales, a lot of percent off discounts that were a little dubious. And that was one of the things when... Ron Johnson, who was the former head of the Apple stores, when he took over JC Penney's, that was one of the things he targeted was getting rid of discounts. And that turned out to be a total backfire because people just really expected them. I used to shop at Lord & Taylor for suits. it's where I would buy my suits. And they were so cheap because you would go there and they would keep giving you coupons. And we already had coupons, and then they would give you another coupon and they would give you 20% off of this. So it was constantly markdown and promotions. And I think after a while, you know, people just expect that. And department stores have tried to modernize themselves a little bit like Macy's bought Story, which is kind of this cool experiential retailer. So the question is, can these places revive themselves to having a very kind of uncool image? It's a huge question about these stores. And I mean, that's a huge segment and market for our products. So in that way, it's very scary.
0: And are there any that are sort of plateauing or not declining as quickly as their competitors? I mean, my sister personally, she loves Nordstrom. And she said specifically, because they have free shipping, <laughs> she's still very much buying online. I mean, are there any that are, is Nordstrom beating the expectations or?
1: I think, first of all, Target is doing very well.
0: Right. But I don't really think of Target as a department store. I mean, it's more of like a big box store, right?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the big questions is, as we've talked about the segmentation of our economy, that it's kind of becoming the middle class is declining and the stores that cater to the middle aren't doing as well as stores that cater to the high end or to the low end. And, you know, that was the big problem with Lord & Taylor. It dealt with middle class consumers and the middle class is not doing so great right now. The economy is becoming very stratified. So and I mean, it's not necessarily always a business problem. There is a declining sales problem but it's also a lot of times it's a structural problem as far as these companies acquire a lot of debt. Their corporate salaries are sometimes extremely bloated. And there's a lot of cases where just as the company goes into bankruptcy, the big executives get bonuses. I mean, I think the old head of Macy's made something like 12 million a year. I mean, these are outrageous amounts. How many executives are worth that? You know, I, I think that's, that's a huge problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also think if we're going to include Target in this bunch, that, you know, Target has done an incredible job of right-sizing its omni-channel operations. I mean, that you can pick up in store, you can have it delivered. They have a shipped function, which I've never used, but I know people are obsessed with. They have done that very well. I don't know of any department store that has mastered the omni-channel approach quite like Target. One last question about the department stores for independent retailers: Does this bode well because there's just less competition for them, and that local neighborhood jeweler emerges as the place to buy fine jewelry?
1: It certainly could. I mean, one of the interesting things about going back into the JCK archives was, like around 1900, 1910, jewelers despised department stores. They were kind of like how online is right now; like they're kind of big enemy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it represents an opportunity. But I also think that the more you see jewelry, the more it inspires demand. So in that way, it's not great. Look, I think there's going to be a huge retail shakeout. And if you assume like I do, that most people still want to buy jewelry in a brick and mortar store, then I think independent jewelers are extremely well positioned going forward.
0: Yeah. I keep hearing about local, local, local. I mean, it is part of this move towards sustainability, obviously buying local, but there's something comforting about keeping those local businesses in your community and patronizing them.
1: Yeah. And I think that's also one thing that people have faulted department stores for is that they never became really part of the community. They were always part of this big faceless corporation. It was kind of this very generic thing. And you certainly hope going forward that now that people are more in touch with their local communities, that independent jewelers are going to be able to take advantage of that.
0: If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show.
1: So let's talk about what possibly is the future.
0: Let me look into my crystal ball and tell you everything that you need to do to thrive. One thing that has been on our minds at JCK, and we had a feature slated for our ill-fated May issue because the May issue never happened, it ended up morphing into a COVID-focused June issue. One of the features that was left on the editing room floor that I definitely think needs to be revived was one about how jewelers can work as stylists and how jewelers should consider themselves stylists, helping customers figure out how to incorporate jewelry into a wardrobe. And I mean, again, that's not a brand new concept, but I don't think a lot of jewelers really approach it that way. Our senior editor, Emily Veselin, had interviewed some retailers who employ you know, salespeople, but they are termed stylists and they teach them really about how to talk to clients about the whole wardrobe look and why it's successful for them. The reason I'm talking about it now is I just spoke to the founder of a new site. It's called the Jewelry Edit. So she's an insider from the jewelry industry who's worked in both fine and fashion and finally decided that she wanted to democratize the jewelry experience and wanted to basically move the jewelry box from the back of the closet and move it to the center of the wardrobe and help women start with a piece of jewelry and then create a whole look around it. And so obviously that's completely virtual these days, but... The site employs stylists and they help you pick out jewelry. They walk through these video consultations where they help you incorporate it into a wardrobe. They've got facial algorithms that help determine what kinds of earrings and things look best on your face. I mean, it's all pretty tech savvy. And it reminds me of these conversations I've had over the last year or so with Milton Pedraza, who's the CEO of the Luxury Institute, who talks a lot about how the future of luxury is really this marriage of digital and human interaction. So you might be buying on a website, but at the same time, you might be chatting with a human advisor, helping you walk through the site, pointing out styles that you might like that they know about based on detailed conversations they've had with you or things you've filled out in a form. I mean, any of these insights that simply going on a website and buying as you do any other transaction, you know, doesn't allow for, you know, it's not brain surgery. I mean, it really is. It just requires somebody who has a sense of style and a sense of How to accessorize. But I think what ends up happening is when clients are shown pieces that they didn't really think about pairing with their wardrobe or didn't really know that they could pull off, when they're shown how to do that by somebody who has expertise, who has confidence, who's friendly without being pushy or aggressive, I think they end up spending. I mean, maybe you start looking around for your stylist in chief, you know, somebody who's the resident accessorizer on your team and knows how to do that. Could be anyone. It could be anyone, but certainly someone with a fashion background would help somebody with a good sense of taste and and how to talk to clients about it. So check out the jewelryedit.com and see what they're doing and see how you incorporate some of those ideas and philosophies into your own business.
1: And and I assume also some people will want more digital and some people will want more human. You know, it's still possible to do a transaction that doesn't involve any digital elements.
0: I mean, and for that matter, a lot of watch retailers aren't allowed to sell certain brands online anyway. So you do have to pick up a phone and call or go to the store and have a chat. So yeah, it hangs on. I guess it'll feel very quaint, but.
1: Yeah. And I think that also gets back to, you know, what we were talking about with department stores is that when people go into a retailer, they want to have good advice, right? They want to have somebody who really knows what they're talking about and has good advice because they, they don't have to make the trip. So they want somebody who's going to help them and is knowledgeable. And I mean, some retailers do a great job and there's some who really don't seem to have much of a clue. I think that's where retailers are going to live and die, you know, especially for jewelry. That's something that jewelers have as their ace up their sleeve, I guess, is that they know more than the customers and customers are going to want the jewelers to be able to guide them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's still such an opaque world and it's so nuanced and esoteric. I mean, a jeweler has a lot to offer. Let's just hope there are a plethora of independent stores left standing. It's
1: actually striking how many stores survived the Great Depression and are struggling now and may not make it now.
0: Yeah, it is sad, but then it's like, you can't help but think, well, this is what happens. The Strong survive and there's a a rebirth process that happens and, you know, that's the only way to look at it if you want to be clinical about it. I guess we do both here. We look at it from that very top-line, bird's-eye view, and we look at it from a very, you know, nitty-gritty, personal view.
1: But, you know, the best will survive. We definitely believe that. On that note, we're bringing back the weird story of the week, because we feel there's a room for some lighter topics, lighter fare. There's a lot of heaviness, so we need some fun here, okay? So... This is a weird story. It's from a publication called In the Know. It appeared on Yahoo. I also supplemented it by uh, some of my own research here. And it's called, I'm going to want your opinion on this, okay? Is it fair to demand your fiance's dead grandmother's ring as your engagement ring?
0: Hmm. Hmm. I mean, demand. I don't.
1: Yeah, you shouldn't demand anything. No. A woman's story of her proposal gone wrong is sparking outrage online. The 24-year-old woman who goes by Engagement ring antique on Reddit shared her story in the Reddit, am I the blank hole? I won't say the bad word, hoping to get some opinions. Recently, the Reddit poster took her girlfriend, who she codenamed Mia, to her grandfather's lake house where she proposed. Uh, Mia said yes, and the whole family was ecstatic. Of course, as they were packing to return to the city, Mia took her now fiancé aside and told her she did not like her new ring. The poster was a bit hurt since she had spent months looking for the perfect ring, but is was open to finding another. However, Mia insisted on getting the antique engagement ring. Said the poster, I've worn this ring since I was 16 and it's very valuable to me. My great-grandparents, who I was very close to, gave it to me before they died. I told her that I was not going to propose with this ring and that I never even thought about it. She got pretty annoyed, called me selfish, and told me that the point of an engagement ring is to propose with it. Mia later said if she didn't get the antique ring, she wouldn't want any kind of engagement ring, and now they're not talking, though some of Mia's friends have reached out to the poster to tell her that she's selfish. She added, also, I talked to my grandfather about this and he just laughed and said, it's my ring and I should do what I want with it. So let me, I'll I'll tell you what Reddit says, but what do you, what's your opinion?
0: I mean, I think, you know, if all these facts as portrayed are in fact true, I think that's pretty gross of Mia. I mean, come on, like don't get to demand that somebody surrender their family heirloom to you just because you're getting married. I don't know, it's pretty gross. I was once proposed to with a ring I didn't love, but I- certainly didn't bring that up. I didn't, I didn't bring it up because it's. I think you got to just be grateful that somebody's proposed to
1: <laughs> you. What was wrong with the ring?
0: That just wasn't my style. I mean, I think that happens a lot. So I am sympathetic, I think, to demand that your fiance surrender this heirloom. I just think that's pretty gross, don't you?
1: Yes. And in fact, you and I and grandpa agrees with the overwhelming majority of Reddit. Said one poster, this is seriously entitled and red flag behavior on her part. Another one said, your GF is being incredibly selfish and entitled. There are huge red flags here. So Reddit agrees with you and me and everybody
0: yeah i mean that's a bullet dodged right there you know but it does prompt this whole other conversation what do people do when their beloved betrothed doesn't like the ring and how does the retailer then get implicated in that i'm sure there's somebody thinking of a cool tech solution to this <laughs>
1: yeah and i mean obviously the way people have been doing it is to go shopping together it becomes more of a joint project totally
0: i'm all for that Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.